Welcome, everyone, to episode 38 of Some Like It's Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and today is a very special episode of the podcast, not only because we'll be talking about our first adaptation of a Stephen King novel on the podcast today, but also because we have a very special guest. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, first, how are you doing today? And second, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, certainly, but I will talk about how I'm doing first, because I think that's the more important of those two questions. Um, I'm doing great, Scott. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Um, and uh, I think that we have a lot to talk about with this movie. Um, I think there are some interesting theories on things, and they obviously made some changes from the novel, which maybe people feel uh, very positively or very negatively about. Um, and in general, you know, I, horror is one of my favorite genres, so I think this is going to be a fun one to talk about, uh, but I think it's also going to be fun to talk about because, as you said, we are joined by a special guest. Uh, and Scott, you know how much I love to hype up my mock trial teams that I coach on the show um, during the season. I would talk about them a lot on the show when you would ask me how I was doing. You know, someone who played an integral part in the success uh, of the teams this year, probably far more integral than the part that I played, uh, was. My assistant, I say my assistant coach, but really my co-head coach, um, who is way more qualified than I am to do the job of mock trial coach. I'm not going to embarrass her by reading off all of her qualifications, uh, but she's kind of a legend in the college mock trial world. That may not mean a lot to a lot of you listening out there, um, but trust me, it's a big deal. Uh, But she also happens to be a fan of scary movies. And so I asked her to go see this movie. And then she asked herself if she could talk about it on the podcast with us. And, you know, we have been wanting to have guests for a while. Uh, And so, yeah, it was a great opportunity to have a guest. And so I'd like to welcome in at this time, uh, my good friend, the pride of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, Danny Kunkel. Danny, how are you? Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. Um, I'm doing well. I uh, am also in law school, for those of you that know about uh, Mr. Harvey being in law school. Um, So this is a great distraction from the work that I need to be getting done right now, and I'm super excited. Uh, Like Scott said, I'm a huge horror fan, so this was a really great movie, and I'm very glad that I have invited myself so graciously onto the podcast (laughs) to talk with you guys about it. Hey, I'm here for it. I think it's great. Uh, happy to have our first guest on a, on a regular episode of the podcast, but excited to dive deep into one movie with not just another Scott. So looking forward to it today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, I'm very excited. <laughs> All right, well, let's do it. On the podcast today, the three of us will be taking a deep dive into the second feature-length adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. Uh, this 2019 version is directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, and Pet Cemetery, as, as some of you might know who are familiar with the source material, is a supernatural horror uh, film set in Stephen King's favorite setting, rural Maine. I think every single one of his books ever was set in rural Maine. I'm sure I'm wrong on that front, but it seems like a lot of them are. In the real-life town of Ludlow, Maine, way up in the north near Canada, the story follows the Creed family. The husband, Lewis, played by Jason Clark, wife, Rachel, played by Amy Simetz, and their daughter and son, 
Ellie Gage, played by Jate Lawrence, and the Lavoie twins, Hugo and Lucas. The Creeds moved to Ludlow for a fresh start after Lewis had been overworked with little time to spend with his family in good old Boston, Massachusetts. Unfortunately, strange things began happening to the Creed family. Strange things which their neighbor, Judd Crandall, played by John Lithgow, tried to explain with some folklore about a nearby forest beyond the Pet Cemetery that allegedly has supernatural powers to bring back the dead. As time passes, more odd events occur and these supernatural powers become all the more relevant for the Creeds. All right, Danny, why don't we start with you? What did you think of this new adaptation of the Stephen King classic? Did this remake bring the story to life or was it as lifeless as we might have wished some of these characters had stayed? I thought that it does what every good Stephen King book or novel does, which is tackle a really unique kind of horror film. This isn't just a typical slasher movie or a typical ghost movie, whereas because that's what we normally see in the horror genre. It's a lot of, you know, the same storyline, but with new characters and that sort of thing. Um, so what I really liked about this is that even though normally I don't find the sort of supernatural horror film scary, I absolutely thought that this was this, you know, met the mark. It was, it really took advantage of the jump scare tactic, which I both love and hate. I mean, I respect that they were able to do it so well, but I was very, very tense the entire movie, um, as you can ask uh, Scott Harvey, because he watched me jump out of my seat multiple times. But uh, overall, I liked it. I think that it might have helped me to understand some of the backstory if I had seen the previous movie or if I had read the book. So I think that they did gear the the remake a little bit more towards people who had had a prior experience with the story um so going you know now in hindsight i wish i had watched the old one um but overall i i liked the film i thought that it was you know decently scary i think that it set up its storyline the way that it wanted to and and you know i walked out feeling like oh i would recommend that to to somebody else you know i to to go off of danny's comments a little bit i think that she's right to say that Yes, this is different in the sense that we are not used to seeing this type of uh, horror creature, I guess. Uh, the, the idea of uh, like undead pets, zombie pets coming back and haunting sort of their former owners is an interesting idea, especially because, you know, my uh, distaste for cats in particular and in general, my indifference with all animals is well documented on this program. Uh, and so again, I, I love to see an example of a movie that really just exposes cats for what they are, which is supernatural demons who are just plotting to take over the world from us. Uh, so I appreciated that aspect of it. But I think that for me, this movie isn't a extremely original type of horror movie that like the type that we've seen recently, um, with you know, thinking about movies like Us or Get Out, you know the Jordan Peele movies, obviously good examples. But you know, another movie I love is It Follows. I don't think that it has sort of the the type of originality or distinct filmmaking style uh, in terms of what the directors bring to it that movies like that have. But I think it fits solidly into the camp of a traditional horror movie, but a very solidly done traditional horror movie. I think that it doesn't reinvent the ways that it scares you. Um, you know, to Danny's point, I think maybe they lean a little bit too heavily into the jump scares at, at points because I don't – jump scares typically don't resonate with me. That's not really – I don't find them scary. They're they're more just startling. But I think that 
the movie creates a very uh, effective atmosphere. I think the performances are good, particularly, you know, we talked about how bad the child acting was in Dumbo. I think we get it opposite here because I think Jate Lawrence, who plays the daughter um, in this movie and actually has sort of a dual role, which we'll get into a little bit later, is actually quite good um, in the movie. And I think all of the actors do a solid job. John Lithgow, always great, I think adds some color as the neighbor. But I think what this movie does, I think, which takes it beyond the realm of, oh, you know, this is an average solid horror movie and, you know, into something a little bit better than that is something that Stephen King is known for doing, which is really fusing other themes into, you know, these horror stories. And I think here in particular, we have uh, a lot about, you know, grief uh, and we have, you know, some interesting ideas on the the finality of death and, you know, the the existence uh, of an afterlife. If you're a person who believes in, in an afterlife, I think, the movie has some interesting takes on that, you know, that you wouldn't get in a traditional horror movie that just, you know, wants to scare you, wants to show you some scary things and then, you know, have you go away after 100 minutes and not really think about the movie very much after that. I think this movie uh, has uh, is, is a lot deeper than that. It's working with some ideas uh, that it wants you to think about after you leave the theater. And I think, you know, we can debate the merits of some of those ideas, but I think for the most part, they do a pretty successful job of, uh, I think, you know, giving the director's take and Stephen King's take uh, on these particular themes uh, and infusing this with something deeper than you would get in an otherwise fairly traditional horror movie. Yeah, I think I think I agree with with both of those takes for, for the most part. I think there are some elements of this movie that don't quite resonate with me, not just from an ideas perspective, but also just in terms of an, an execution and, and maybe some of the some of the subplots that I thought, I mean, I, I get that there's a source material to work from. And so there's only probably so many liberties that you take or so many things that you can cut out. But given some of the changes that were made from the source material, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more uh, later on in the podcast, I, I think that there could have been some other changes that would have made the story feel tighter. And this is a, a good traditional horror movie. I, th- I think that listeners of the podcast will know that horror is not my preferred genre, unlike Scott. For me, the traditional horror genre is just not something that I'm uh, that I that usually resonates too much with me or that I uh, enjoy all that much. And I think that rel- relative to a lot of those movies, this is one that I did enjoy. I think to your point, it's it's such an interesting movie to come out only a few weeks after us because in some ways, that although indirect, I think there's there's a complementary nature of. We are our own worst enemies in this movie. And in terms of tackling that theme, I think this movie might even tackle it better, better than us did. Cause I thought that was a theme that, you know, at least advertisements for us sold that movie being that I think kind of left under delivered on. I think it delivered on other themes better at least. But, but to me, I think this movie is to your point, a lot about grief, a lot about how we are self-defeating and, and or at least the links we go to, to overcome grief and grief and, and, and to undo that. And so in that sense, I thought the, the movie did a really great job. You mentioned, the Jatay Lawrence, who plays the daughter, Ellie, did a great job. I, I loved the acting in this movie. I think from an ensemble perspective, although there aren't that many perform like performers in this movie, I think that across the board, we get incredibly strong performances from Amy Simons, from Jason Clark, who I think is, is underrated in, in the quality of his performances consistently in multiple movies per year. He's a very busy guy. He's in a lot of movies, and I think he does a great job across the board. And then for me, the standout, not if I had to pick someone besides Ellie, it was John Lithgow. I absolutely loved him in this role. I think John Lithgow is himself a legend, but his performance in this in this role added additional heart and, and to to this movie that I wasn't necessarily expecting. And I really enjoyed his performance. Yeah, I agree. I think 
to you know speaking to Lithgow, I like the you know sort of crotchety old man vibe, but he also kind of keeps you on edge because you're never really sure, even though you know the character seems to be going one way, you're not sure if there's something more sinister lying beneath this character, and I think he does a good job of sort of keeping that tension up throughout the entire movie. I agree with that completely, and I completely agree with you, other Scott, that <laughs> um, Jason Clark's performance was phenomenal. I as the movie developed and as his character developed, I was getting a lot of sort of the shining vibes, you know, a good Jack Nicholson sort of dad figure. Um, so I really, really liked his performance. And I agree with you, uh, Scott Harvey, that uh, John Lithgow kept me guessing the whole time. I kept wondering, you know, is he going to come out and be a bad guy or that sort of thing? And so I, I agree that both of those performances were some of the shining moments of the movie. The Lithgow performance is so interesting because, I mean, I was someone who I, I've actually read the book. It's one of the few Stephen King books that I've read. And so for me, it was, well, again, we'll get into like the differences between the novel and the movie. But for me, it was interesting because they made such apparent changes to at least like the context of this character. That it, I wasn't ever in question whether or not he was like a good or a bad guy, but I was wondering if they would make any additional changes to the character, given the fact that there were some key differences in the movie compared to the novel in terms of what this character's life was like. So it, to me, it was interesting. And I thought that, you know, whatever, it, th- this easily could have been a role where whoever was doing it just kind of sort of phoned it in. I just really appreciated how much I felt like Lithgow put into this performance. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. So on that note, we've already started talking about acting a little bit. And, and Danny, you mentioned Jason Clark. And I think we'd, it's worth diving a little bit deeper on that, both Jason Clark's performance and also his character in, in Lewis. Scott, why don't we start with you this time? What, what did you think of, of Jason Clark since you seem like the person who's said the least about him so far? Yeah, I think he does a solid job. I think maybe his performance takes a little bit to to lock in. And I think it took a little bit for me to truly appreciate his performance. But I think that's because this character goes through a lot of change in the movie. And he starts out as sort of, you know, your typical sort of suburban dad character. You know, I, I think there's there's not a lot to the character at first. But after, you know, a climactic thing happens and uh, his perspective on the world sort of changes, I think he does a really good job of, you know, going back to that that theme of grief, of portraying a, a grieving parent and particularly the sort of the way that his character is blind, so blinded by this grief uh, that he almost becomes uh, hostile to a certain point. He also becomes uh, a villain or an enemy towards the end of the movie uh, because he he can't see you know what is really going on, and he's he's so blinded by um, you know how this how the tragedy has affected him. Uh, I think he does a really nice job of uh, sort of very slowly and deliberately, but believably, you know, going on a sort of downward spiral uh, as the movie goes on, and, and t- to a point. Uh, where you know he he he's frustrating. The character is frustrating by the end because you want to just sort of shake him and say, "Hey, wake up!" Like uh, you know, you, you got to get over this. Um, but at the same time, you know, believable. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Scott. I really liked his chemistry too with the two female leads, with uh, Amy playing his wife as well as with Jesse playing his daughter. Um, I think that his progression with them was again, part of what made him really realistic. I agree with you, though, that it did take kind of a while to be able to connect with his character. Um, But once they showed more of his relationships, I think with the two leading ladies, I think that that's where we saw more development on his part. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and he's definitely a a character in conflict. I think part of the 
part of the pause and in, in, in initially connecting with this character is that you don't really know what you're going to get from him, right? Especially if you're unfamiliar with the source material or if you, that what you see is someone who is torn, right? And and probably maybe a little, I don't know, I, it, maybe this is overreading it, but maybe even a little bit bitter that he's ended up here in, in rural Maine with his family. He's a, you know a doctor by trade, a surgeon by trade, and he wa- and being in Boston working at a hospital that's you know one of the best in the country, going to you know a local hospital here in you know northeast rural Maine is a huge step down in his career, but allowing him to refocus on his family. And I think it's hard to tell at first whether or not you know this is a change that he wanted or a change that he felt like he you know he had to make in order to sustain his his family life and maybe put one of his passions in, in terms of you know being a doctor on hold and so i think that there's an element here that you're we're a little bit cautious about when you when you go into the movie and, and, you, and you see this character and you're introduced to this character and it does take to to your point danny and i think it's a great one it, it takes him interacting with his family that thing that we're not quite sure where he is uh in relation to them at and at least in terms of a, a mental state maybe it takes interaction with them to understand no, this is a character that I that does resonate with that I can connect with because yes, he maybe he'd loved being a doctor and maybe he loved being a doctor in Boston, but it was a sacrifice that he was willing to make and that he did make and his relationship with his family, you know, he's he's clearly putting a lot of effort into that and something that he cares about. And of course, the rest of the movie revolves around his relationship with his family and so it becomes a, a critical part and I think that's where that character evolves, you connect that character a little bit and that performance becomes even more nuanced. I agree. Same. <laughs> Jason Clark's stand-up performance, I'm sure we'll continue to reference him, but I'd love to you know, shift gears a little bit, talk about one of those female leads that you referenced, Danny, and that's Amy Simons, who plays Rachel. Danny, what did you, th- what did you think of her? I think that Amy Simons is, is a relatively unknown name. How did you think she performed in, in what, what might be her biggest role to date? I really liked her. I think that her character was probably one of the most challenging because not only was she having that arc of you know, fear because it's a horror film. All of the actors are reacting to the, the frightful things happening to them, but she had the most emotional storyline, you know, like looking at her past and all of the, the flashbacks that we saw there, as well as in, you know, later on in the movie, the relationships that she had with her children. Um, So I think that her performance brought a real, uh, just like a different take on it. You know, we wouldn't have had that same emotional connection or that same emotional representation in the movie, but for her performance. I didn't find her backstory all that coherent. I feel like maybe a, a few more scenes to kind of help that connect maybe might have helped me. Even after when Scott and I were driving home, I was asking him, you know, I didn't really get that. And, and he was pointing out, you know, some of the more it was connecting the theme of the movie and talking again how you deal with grief and how you deal with the afterlife. And I got those points to an extent, um, but I think that I, I needed as a viewer, I needed more understanding of her backstory and how that was relevant to what was happening in the present in the movie, if that makes sense. No, I think that totally makes sense. And, and to me, it, I mean, to your point, and maybe this will, we'll get a, maybe we'll get a counter from Scott here in a second, but I, I actually think her backstory is probably the weakest point of the movie. I think that this is one that is obviously to Scott. I mean, to what Scott probably will say, or based on what you're talking about here, that th- this is something that's necessary and it's a critical part of the book and, and understanding this character I just think that given the liberties that were taken and the changes that were made, I think in in some ways they either needed to lean more into it and devote a little bit more time to your point or for, pare it down further than they did and remove the vast majority and, and more only make it a passing reference rather than a critical part of this movie. Because I just think it, the, the effort and the time they did give to it in this film 
didn't didn't quite land the way I would have hoped or and I'm sure also the filmmakers would have hoped as well. Yeah, that's that's where I was coming from for it as well. I think that it was either they spent too much time or I didn't really get it enough. Well, okay. So before I destroy your arguments with facts and logic, um, I'm kidding, obviously. I I, I just want to say that I did also enjoy Amy Simons' performance. I think that she's a nice foil for Jason Clark. Going back to sort of my comments on Jason Clark's performance, I think that um, – She's a nice foil because, yes, she's affected in the same way as Jason Clark is by, you know, grief and by the tragedy, the tragic event which befalls them. Uh, but at the same time, she it doesn't cloud her judgment, right? So she's locked in this awkward position of having to, you know, say to her husband, like, look, you know, I feel the same way that you do. I'm as broken up about this as, pot, as you are. But also, you have to see the reality of the situation here. Uh, you know, you have to... Uh, stop letting your your grief and paranoia blind you um, and, you know, come back down to earth and come to terms with what has happened. To, to go on to the other point now, I think that's really what this backstory is about. Uh, it's about the idea of coming to terms with death, which I think is one of the central um, themes of the movie and which we will talk more about when we get into spoilers. But I think that for me, it further cemented this theme in a way that I, I do feel like they, they spent enough time on it. I mean, it's not it's not something that's mentioned in passing, you know, with once one scene that shows what happened in the past. It's something that is constantly haunting this character throughout the movie. She constantly hears that knocking noise, uh, you know, from the ceiling, which is exactly, you know, how she exactly what she heard um, when the the tragic event in her past happened. And I think that a lot of her character's arc in this movie is about her coming to terms with what happened in her past in the form of coming to terms with what is going on in the present now. And it worked for me. I think that, you know, they kept it going throughout the movie. There were enough, you know, references to it and enough, again, you know, that, that knocking that's constantly haunting her. I think they did put the time and effort into sort of fleshing it out and it worked for me ultimately. For me, I felt like we, we t- mentioned at the outset that this movie maybe leans into too many jump scares in, in a way. And I think that it's it's in this. I think this is one of those sub threads where they lean really hard on jump scares to to wrap up the fight, like the the reoccurrence, right, of the the, th- the thudding noise, etc. Because I, I, I'm going to separate this out and, and basically try to say two things. One I think that it probably would have been just as effective to just remove the jump scares from the end of those segments. But two, I do think that it, this might have been better served with a little bit less time. I, I, I do want to stick by that. I think that I understand what you're saying around. I understand what you're saying around it having a, an appropriate amount of references to the film. And you can tell that it's constantly haunting her. But for me, it seems muddled. Like, is, is she overcoming like this past experience because she's having to deal with it or is it it felt a little bit muddled because there's also some you know at least some allusion toward the fact that maybe it's this place that's forcing her to come to terms with this and and not some like internal reckoning of her own which i thought added like some weird question mark around the one of the key themes of the movie about coming to terms with grief it's like being forced upon them by this place rather than something that they're having to come to terms with over the natural course of their life. And maybe ultimately that doesn't actually matter to you uh, or to other people around that being said, I think that less reference or again, more dedicated reference to understanding, you know, her relationship with her parents or her relationship with Zelda, her sister 
might have better served me, but to you, I, I, I'm happy that it worked for you. I think I just need a little bit more or just need a little bit less investment because I think what, to me, what it did accomplish and all the references that it made could have been done with less. I, I think there are just certain elements and certain moments in the scene that didn't add anything to the story that didn't already know. And I think there's, you know, not just the, the times when it comes up with, you know, her hearing those noises in the house, but the actual flashbacks themselves, I feel like some of those didn't add too much to what the story was already telling, especially when you, when it's complemented by the, you know, the recurring noises that she's hearing and the, you know, the hallucinations that she, that she's having. Yeah. Well, agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah. For the record, I completely agree with uh, other Scott's analysis. I think that it was overused in the jump scare sort of sense. Each time she was hearing the noise, it was always just to build up this huge suspense and end with either an actual jump scare or, oh, we just got really anxious and then there is no jump scare. But I, I agree that I think that maybe if there had been some sort of connection with the end of the movie and more of that backstory, then maybe it would have resonated more for me. But by the time we left, I was kind of like, okay, I sort of get why they did that. But then in the ultimate grand scheme of the plot, it just didn't, it didn't like help me answer any ultimate questions, if that makes any sense at all. Right. And I think this is actually, so to this point right here, I think this is one of the main differences between the movie and the book, the original source material, that I think the movie didn't do a good job changing. I think that if you want that connection to be made, because you even get a glimmer, right? Like right before she dies from, uh, oh, well, I guess we just talked about spoilers, whatever. We're half an hour in. Uh, like right before she dies, at, like towards the end of the movie and like the final few scenes, she, you know, tells her husband, whatever you do, don't bury me in that place. And I think, uh-huh. so in the original source material, the book, Lewis <laughs> is able to survive all this to f- like, kill there are other differences in the plot doesn't really matter but he's able to survive this sort of final scene and in the final moments of the movie he goes and buries his wife again in in that in the you know beyond the pet cemetery and comes back and the book closes with 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 that sort of final moment and her coming back to life and i think that would have been the ult like that would have been an, a better ending since they were leading into this theme and that you do get her saying you know, whatever you do, don't bury me there. This is not what death is supposed to be like. This is not what coming to terms with death is supposed to be like. You, you still do get part of it with that, with her saying that to Lewis, to Jason Clark's character. And then of course, again, since we've pretty much all gone full spoilers here, which is my bad. Um, and then Ellie coming, you know, re, like be, going off and burying her, which that was a very, I thought that was a very strange change to the plot in my opinion. But to me, it felt like the theme of the movie about dealing with grief it w- would have been better cl- like the loop would have better been closed with okay you see the like you clearly see the difference in several different ways with Rachel's character and how she you know she doesn't want Lewis to bury her and then on the other hand you have Lewis ma- you know managing to survive all these events and then gr- like still feeling that grief and feeling like there somehow could be a better outcome the second time of trying and then goes and buries her again uh, and, and you know lives with that fate I think that actually would have been a better ending to the story from that thematic perspective. I think there are maybe some other questions you could have around that ending, but from a thematic perspective, would have closed the loop. Scott, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. I mean, again, I, I just go, go back to that. I think they, it was a well-rounded backstory that worked with the themes of the movie. At, you know, as we keep saying with coming to terms with grief, maybe it didn't add a whole lot, but it really just cemented the theme for me because, you know, again, she's a foil for the Jason Clark character, who can't come to terms with death. He, you know, and that's why he's consistently burying these people out there. 
you know, behind the pet cemetery, why he, he buries his daughter out there, uh, because, you know, he can't come to terms with death. And for a long time, Rachel is the same way. But we see that, you know, and this is just the nature of the movie, that she has to have this really traumatic and life altering experience in order for her to see, you know, that she has to accept what happened and just move on from it because, uh, you know, death is final. And it's kind of this very depressing message of life sucks. And you know what? So does death too. Uh, And she has to kind of come to terms with that, or it's just going to keep haunting her and, you know, in the way that it's haunting her husband. Uh, So I think, I don't know, I I, I liked the way uh, that they had this character acting as a foil for the Jason Clark character. Although ultimately in the end, you know, they all end up suffering the same fate. I think that uh, you know, it helped me get a clearer message about what the movie was really trying to say about, you know, the afterlife and, you know, ha- how are we supposed to respond to death and what are we supposed to tell our kids about death? Uh, it, you know, it worked for me. Well, sorry, last last point, if I could, on that. Scott, I think that the very thing that you point out that for you, it helped you see like the differing perspectives on death. I feel like she never came to terms with her sister's death. And so that is part of why the backstory didn't work for me is because I felt like, yes, the whole movie we were watching her try to work through that trauma, but she never did. So I think that if maybe we had seen more of like, or maybe I just missed it in in the, you know, final moments where things were very dramatic, but I never got that final like, oh, she has now resolved this trauma. And like I said, I think that if we had gotten that, maybe it would have connected better for me. Yeah, I think that's an uh, that's probably an interesting point to to close the loop on that. And I you know, I do to reference back the kind of from the original question asked about you know Amy Simetz's performance to echo what the both of you said. I think I think it is a good performance, and I do agree that it's a good foil for Jason Clark's character because you know to your point, Danny, maybe it she doesn't ever come to terms with her sister's death, but having to have having to have dealt with her sister's death has taught her or at least it has given her a different perspective, regardless of whether she ever comes to terms with it. What she never ultimately thinks that bringing her sister or her daughter back to life is the solution to death. And, and so the juxtaposition of how the two of them deal with, with grief and with death is probably ultimately what the movie is trying to say. And I agree that it, it probably would have been better if you felt, or it would, at least would have been better from your perspective if you felt that, that you've gotten some closure on that subplot, but that the ultimate message about grief probably still holds true. Remind me if I'm remembering this wrong, but don't we see like in that final climactic scene back at the house, like she hears the thudding noise and she's try she's basically trying to block it out and then basically gets ends up getting interrupted by, you know, the Yes. the daughter by Ellie, you know, there's another struggle. I think to me that signifies that you know, here's another experience which has given her a chance to sort of put that grief aside and to, you know, react in a way and respond in a way that she probably couldn't, the fir- that she wasn't able to the first time uh, and, you know, not allow herself to be affected by this trauma. Uh, and so I think, you know, that's that's a good moment of, of sort of uh, showing how the past is played out in the present and how things have changed for her. Um, and you know, she has responded to this in a different way. 
so I, I can kind of see what you're saying there, but I ultimately think I still stand by it. I think it's one of the, it's one of the weaker parts of a good movie. Still, it is still a good movie. Uh, and I, I think that's important to emphasize that not to be too negative on this point. Yeah. Awesome. So moving on here, two more characters to hit before we talk about the plot. I know we spent we spent a lot of time talking about the plot right there, so that'll that'll cover part of our plot section. But John Lithgow, you know, someone who I've kind of wa- waxed lyrical about already, and and, and that uh, I think both of you have have also said you really enjoyed his performance. But Danny, why don't we start with, with you? What did you think a little bit in a little bit more detail about John Lithgow and this character of Judd? I really, really liked his performance. Um, I think that like Scott Harvey and I touched on before, he added this kind of folksy he made me keep guessing the whole time about what his character's ultimate motivations were and i i liked you know some of the the connections to his past obviously we didn't delve into it in the movie the same way that we did with the other main characters um but getting to learn a little bit about his wife and how he learned about the pet cemetery and everything like that i think he was a really good lens to get the history of the area um, and like I said, I think he just really uh, uh, capitalized on that performance and and took advantage of that role in the best way possible. Um, I think that also his relationship with the family was really interesting to watch it evolve. Obviously, at the beginning, when Amy's character, Rachel, finds her daughter, Ellie, interacting with this old man with a bunch of crosses around a, a, a central graveyard because it is the pet cemetery. I think that they're really, really skeptical of him and and wondering, you know, what the heck is this guy doing? Um, but I think it's interesting to watch how eventually the family sort of welcomes him in. You know, he's at the birthday party and they they accept that he's got this really kind of close relationship with their young nine-year-old daughter. Um, and I really like to watch that evolution. And then, of course, as the plot goes on, as he and Jason, you know, take church up and, and they just learn more and more about the area where they're now living, it's again, interesting to watch that arc of their their relationship. So it started as distrust, and then it became this really close-knit sort of almost uncle or grandfatherly figure, and then it goes back to the distrust. Um, so I really, really liked watching the interactions of the other characters uh, with Judd and kind of how he helped us learn about the, the Pet cemetery and really the overall background. Yeah, I think to not repeat anything that I've said, I, I, I just think that He's very believable um, as this character. I think you believe, you know, to, to Danny's point, that he he's the kind of person who could endear this family to him and, you know, the short amount of time that they're there to the point where, you know, he's at their birthday party. He's at, you know, Ellie's birthday party. Um, and, you know, he's kind of an extended part of their family because, of course, he's lonely and, and you know, has lost his wife. And, and you know, you believe – you know, going further, you believe also that he is that guy, that he's, you know, the, the lonely sort of hermit guy. He's lived in this house all of his life. He's never really known anything other than this place. And maybe that's why he clings so tightly to the idea of this area beyond the pet cemetery being a special place, despite his history with it, despite what he's seen in the past, uh, you know, his connection to the area and to, you know, the land on which he has spent all of his life, you know, kind of leads him to believe something different. And, I think when it turns out to, you know, when his belief turns out to not be justified, I think that, you know, his uh, reaction and the way that he, uh, you know, comes to terms with that is very believable. And, you know, I I just really liked what he brought to the role. I think he was a perfect choice to play this character. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'd go to far to say this is one of my favorite performances of the year so far. There's something about it. There's some element, some folksiness to your point, Danny. And he knocks it out of the park so well. I just I loved what he brought to this movie and 
to, to kind of take this conversation a step further and again reference that source material and one of the changes, this is actually one of the bigger ones. So his wife is in the book is actually still alive. And, and mm. that, I think that removes if, you know, you both talked about this element of, you know, not being sure exactly what's going on with this character, what he's up to and keeping you guessing throughout the whole book. I think that's kind of removed if, if you introduce his wife to the, to the equation, which is what the book had done. And it's, it's actually through his wife having a heart attack and, and Lewis saving her that is, is introduces the creeds to Judd and, and his wife. And, and that's when their relationship starts to develop. And so in, in that sense, I actually think this change might've served the movie. Well, it definitely changes. Like I mentioned earlier, the context of this character a little bit, and it makes you understand this character a lot more quickly in the book. But for me, I think part of, you know, part of the suspense of the book and part of the element. And one of the reasons why I love this character so much is that you are driven to doubt what this, this character's motives are, or at least question what this character's motives are. And in the book, I, I don't, I don't remember ever really questioning what Judd's motives were in, you know, telling Lewis about what lies beyond the pet cemetery and, and that folklore. And you, you don't really question why, you know, in the book, what, like how this relationship develops and what his, you know, what his intentions are. And in the movie you do. And I think that adds to, to this performance that, that John Lithgow puts in as Judd. And I did not even know that at all until you pointed it out. But I, I think I agree. Like, I think uh, maybe in the book, when we have a more long form story that is being told, you know, it, it works to have this whole, you know, backstory with him uh, and the wife. But I think, you know, in the self-contained universe of this movie, that is an hour and 40 minutes long. Uh, I think it may have been a little too unwieldy to, to go into all of that. And I, I like the way that they set up this character and, John Lithgow makes you believe it and doesn't have to work very hard uh, or spend much time making you believe it. So I think they did a good job with that. Absolutely. Yeah. So instead of us, you know, spending a little, any more time, you know, praising this performance, why don't we move on the last performance, Scott, it's one that you mentioned was the standout performance for you. And that's Jatay Lawrence as LA. Why don't we start with you? You want to go into a little bit more detail about what you thought made this child acting performance so special, especially, you know, when you put it next to something that we talked about, you know, just a few weeks ago in, in Dumbo. Yeah, so I said earlier it's kind of like a dual role, but now, I mean, the more that I think about it, there's almost really three different roles going on here. So first of all, you have sort of you know the innocent child, uh, you know the the lovable daughter that we get, you know, for the first hour or so of the movie, and you know I think it's a solid but unremarkable job there in terms of playing that particular role. I mean, I do, I certainly think it's better than the kids in Dumbo just because she actually knows how to deliver lines in a script, but then. It, you know, obviously, after her character dies, we see sort of a second stage in which she enters where she's sort of this zombied out, like, well, I mean, literally zombied out, but she's like, she, in some respects, she's the same person, she's the same daughter, but there's obviously something not quite right about her. And I think she does a really good job of, you know, not going from zero to 100 like immediately and, you know, making this transition more believable, uh, you know, when she immediately comes back of, well, you wonder, you know, is this just the, the immediate effect of, you know, her being revived? Is she eventually going to return to the Ellie that we get for the first half of the movie? Or, you know, is this just the first step in her slipping further downward? And of course, you know, that is the, that is the answer, but, uh, you know, she, she has us asking those questions with the way that, 
you know, she she plays the performance in this stage of the movie. And then, of course, the final stage, the third role of sorts that she plays is, you know, she does get, get to that 100 level and is, you know, a, a full blown uh, sort of supernatural zombie uh, demon. And I think, you know, for a child actor, she is very dark and disturbing in the way that she's able to capture this performance. And this is actually something, you know, to, to go now to, to what I looked up, I think that this is one of the things the filmmakers talked about and in, in why they made the change of having Ellie be the daughter or the, the child that gets killed and then comes back simply because Gage is a three-year-old and they didn't think that a three-year-old actor would really even be physically or mentally capable of doing the sort of dark and twisted stuff that they wanted this character to do when, you know, she is reincarnated. And I, I mean, personally, I think that's probably a good choice. Um, it's, it's especially a good choice. I mean, definitely hindsight bias. It seems like it because Jate Lawrence does such a good job. And, uh, you know, I think we, we see the, the demon girl, like little girl seems to be sort of a, a trope that we get in a lot of movies nowadays. Uh, but this one stuck with me because of the way that the character changes over the course of the movie. And so I think that her, her performance deserves a lot of credit. Yeah, Scott, I agree with you. Um, I had also looked up, because like I've mentioned, I didn't read or see the previous movie, um, but I had also looked up to see you know some of the changes. And I did see that it was Gage who, who died in the other versions. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more that it was a great choice to have Ellie as the child that ends up being you know killed and brought back. Um, I agree. She brought a very just haunting performance to it, which obviously is so typical to hear in a horror film. But she, like you said, she played this really interesting line where one second she would be sickly sweet with her dad and the next second she was lashing out and being really violent and aggressive. Speaking as someone who growing up, I was always really, really close with my dad. It was kind of interesting to watch their reactions. Um, I'm really close with my mom now, but I, I know that if I turned into a zombie, my mom would kill me in a heartbeat. Um, so <laughs> it was very similar to the way that. And, and, uh, that and maybe the message of this movie is that that's the sign of true love right there, that your mom would kill you. Oh, I know. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> now I think my dad probably would too, but Point remains, I I personally, because of my relationship with my dad, particularly when I was at that age, it was interesting to watch their interactions. I thought that the the actors did a really, really great job portraying that sort of closeness and the fact that, you know, dads, a lot of the time with their young daughters, they don't want to believe that they could do anything wrong. And he would always call her a princess and she'd be dancing around the living room and stuff like that. I thought that that brought a very, you know, childlike realness to it. But at the same time, it was so creepy because she's got the veiny face and the gross hair and, you know, he's trying to brush her hair in the bath and it's got like stitches on her head and stuff that he doesn't know where they came from. That's so, that was so disturbing. That was like one of the ugh, yeah. ickiest parts of the movie for me. Yeah. So I think that overall, like, but like we've talked about, obviously, uh, the chemistry between Jason and Jette was incredible, but on her own, like you said, Scott, that progression of her character was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, and you know, quickly to that point about the stitches, one one small thing that I think maybe overlooked is that I think they did a really good, a, a really smart job of making this movie R rated, uh, because I think you see so many sanitized horror movies um, that really can't get at the true darkness in the material because of you know the limitations that that rating puts on them because they want to appeal to a more widespread audience, uh, perhaps. But I think that. 
this story is so dark um, and, you know, so disturbing that I don't even see how you do a PG-13 version of this. So I think they made the right choice to not even try. Yeah, I agree. I don't understand why. I mean, I guess I, I from a business perspective, I understand why they want to go for the um, the PG-13 rating. You get, you will get more people in the seats. Like there, there is a wider audience that you limit yourself when you when you have an R rating. But to do the source material justice, especially the source material of Stephen King, which I mean everyone knows is disturbing. There's very few Stephen King novels, if any, that aren't that aren't going to have these sort of R-rated elements that they're exploring and that they're leaning into. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm glad they went that direction. And I think that Jatay Lawrence's performance here, to echo what you guys have already said, is exactly what this movie needed. And to the point about the change that's made, this change is also spot on for me. Just like I think cutting out uh, Judd's wife complemented the contained nature of the movie, to your point, Scott. I think this one does as well because I, I have a feeling that the filmmakers are right. I, I can't imagine a three-year-old act, acting performance that is able to, I mean, not just physically do the things that are required of this role, but also be able to add the nuance and depth of that performance uh, that, that it requires in order to feel, you know, to, to look back and be like, yeah, this is what we were going for. And so for me, that works really well. Uh, the, the only difference, so the one difference that we have we only briefly touched on it that didn't sit well with me or that I think that didn't really capture something that I thought the book did really well. And, and that's like the ultimate ending where the the book or sorry, the movie ends with Jatay Lawrence, of course, as we've already mentioned, killing the mother and then dragging her and re and burying her beyond the pet cemetery, which then in this sort of final showdown when at least I think the movie would say Lewis finally comes to terms with grief and is ready to kill his, you know, his daughter, the reanimated Wendigo version of his daughter, you know, that in that moment, he's about to make that killing blow. And what you get is you get his wife stabbing him through the chest with this like iron rod cross. That was a big surprise giving what I knew about the book. And I thought what was going to happen was that he was going to kill his daughter have a you know another 180 turn and then go bury his wife trying to bring her back to life and that's i thought it was going to follow the ending of the book and it didn't and instead you, you have him killed they bury him you know they bury him beyond the pet cemetery and they come back and there's this menacing kind of really creepy final scene where they're walking towards the car with with gauge in it and for me i i didn't like this ending relative to what i was expecting i think it's it's a more interesting a way to to close out the themes of the movie to have lewis make a choice about whether or not to accept the death of his wife rather than him just being killed and then reanimated. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I don't know for me whether it ultimately makes a huge difference. I think, uh, you know, I, I did think that that ending worked really well. So the fact that we we still get to that ending, yeah, I, I, I don't know if if it, I mean, to your point, maybe it, it fits better with the themes of the movie, which I think seem to, have, seem to resonate with me maybe a little more strongly uh, than they did with you. So, you know, maybe this ultimately I do come out a little bit more positive um, on this, but I think, you know, that ending is strong to me. So the way w- the way that we get there is perhaps not quite as important in terms of who kills who. Um, so, you know, probably probably d- didn't bother me as much as it did you. But I also don't have the, the basis of having read them. The fact that Gage was sitting there in the car with all the windows closed, the whole ending, I was really distracted because I thought that he like the dad was going to be able to kill the girl. I didn't really know what was going to happen with the mom, but I thought he was going to come back to the car and Gage was going to be dead because the car like suffocated him. So 
I was like on a toe because I always try to, you know, guess what's coming next. Um, so I was on a really, really different uh, train of thought as the ending was progressing. Um, but I guess that's just my own being in torts class or something or crim law class <laughs> about kids left in cars. But point remains, I liked the ending to an extent. Um, I liked that there weren't a ton of unanswered questions. I really hate when I leave a movie and I'm like, but I don't know what happens. Um, so I, I liked that aspect of it just for my own satisfaction. Um, oh, see, I love those endings. I love those que- those endings that ask the questions that are in, maybe don't give an answer to. So maybe that maybe we differ on that front then. Oh, like Inception. I love that. Oh, I love that. One of my favorite endings of all time. Oh, see the spinning top. It drives me crazy. I want to know so badly. But um, so for me, I liked that this resolved. I liked that it resolved. But I'm hearing the alternate ending. Yeah, I think that that might have been more interesting to see if he would have made the same choice again with his wife and how that would have resolved. Yeah. I don't know how I would have viewed it differently in all honesty. Yeah. Any other thoughts about the plot? I, we ended up talking kind of interweaving the characters of the plot. Um, are there any other characters that we might've missed that you want to mention or any other elements of the plot that you thought worked well or didn't work well? One thing I do briefly want to say is that I am interested to know what y'all thought about where this movie comes down on the afterlife. Cause this is something also that Danny and I kind of talked about afterwards because I was kind of going back and forth and may- maybe this is an area where I don't think the movie quite succeeds. And maybe it was a little, it, they muddied the waters a little bit about, you know, whether this is to simplify things pro afterlife or anti afterlife, because it seems like on one hand you could argue that because Jason Clark's character is obviously very from the beginning. He's like, I don't believe in the afterlife. Death is death. You know, that that's the end of it. And, you know, I think you could say that, well, that's why he responds so strongly to when his daughter dies, because he sees death as this final thing, right? There, There's nothing beyond that. And that's why he reacts in the way that he does. And he just can't accept that his daughter is dead. And so maybe in that respect, the movie is saying that, okay, it's okay to believe in an afterlife because that's, you can believe that that's a way to come to terms with uh, you know, the fact that your child has died, and, you know, to, to use this example, but, you know, you can still believe that they're out there watching over you. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to live with the horror of that death forever. On the other hand, I think to some extent, this is kind of about don't lie to your kids about, you know, what happens. At, be, be straight with your kids about what happens, like when someone dies, because obviously they try to lie to to Ellie about what happened to church, the cat. And, you know, it, it obviously doesn't work out for other reasons, but you know, that kind of goes to the point of, you know, you should really just be straight with your kids about what happens when people die. And, and, and that death is a final thing. So I think on that, in that respect, you could see, you know, this movie as sort of being against the idea of an afterlife. And really, you know, the whole, the whole concept of the movie is that these people do have an afterlife of some sort, but it's an evil and, hellish one to, you know, refer to the quote that Ellie kind of says to her mom at the end of the movie about like, you know, how her dad was wrong. Like they, they, uh, you know, people do come back, but it's not, they don't go to heaven. They they go to hell or come from hell. So I, I don't know. I just would be interested to know what y'all thought on that. Yeah. I think that from my, my take on this is, is one that I'd actually say that the, I don't think the movie does come down either way. I think that the arguments that you've laid out are are definitely relevant and pertinent. But one of the things that, that trumps for me 
either of these arguments is that ultimately the explanation that we're given for these reanimated, you know, zombies, corpses, whatever you want to call them. The reason that we're given is that there's this spirit, this Wendigo that haunts these forests basically. And that if you bury, you know, whatever you bury in this, in the cemetery up on top of this mountain or, or whatever it is, or, you know, at the top of this hill, that the spirit embodies them and brings them back to life. So what actually comes back isn't isn't the child. And I think this is referenced right, not 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 directly, but indirectly by the mother. It's like that child's not us. It's not it's not her. It's, this is something else. And I think what this is saying, at least, it gives you a free pass to say this movie doesn't actually make a judgment either way because what is really animating these corpses is not the spirit that has lived on and gone to heaven or gone to hell, whichever take you you make on that. But it's actually just this this being, this supernatural being that's that's brought these these bodies, these these physical bodies back to life, and not an actual statement on whether there is an afterlife. And and I think that the, the debate remains open from the movie's perspective based on the other arguments that you've laid out. Yeah, I think it remains open. Um, at the same time, I think that maybe, and this might just be my take, I think that maybe the movie tends to side with with Rachel, the mom's view, that there is an afterlife. And the only reason I think that the movie, in my opinion, leaned that way is because even up to the end, she was seen as the character who was rational and seeing th- things realistically, whereas Lewis, the dad, was seen as the obviously kind of crazy one who's reanimating his family. So I think to me, if the movie was taking a side, they were taking the side of there is something after and that because Lewis, like we talked about, didn't believe in an afterlife, that's why he was so intent on clinging to the live versions of his family. Yeah, I think that saying it remains open is maybe right, but I also think that's frustrating to me because I think the movie does build up as if it's going to make some statement by having these characters have these conversations early in the movie, you know, you're expecting some sort of statement about, you know, this issue of the afterlife in the end. So I think for there to not be that resolution, you know, is a little bit frustrating, but I, Danny, I think you're right. Like if you're going to argue one way or the other, I think that's probably where I would come out as well. Awesome. Well, I think that should just about do it. We can enter the wrap up phase now. Danny, we'll start with you. What was your favorite scene from Pet Cemetery? I think that my favorite scene would be when Rachel was fighting with Ellie at the end. Like you talked about before, the quote where she says, you're not my daughter. I just felt like that was so impactful because we had been seeing how Lewis was so wrapped up in this and he was making any excuse for the behavior of of Ellie and to see the mom just so definitively not buy it and and you know, be judging her husband for what he's done. And, and just, she was so rational. I just kind of respected her. She was just really just so strong, you know, after having gone through all of this trauma for her to definitively be like, no, this is not okay. I'm not going to believe that you're my daughter, yada, yada, yada. And she put up the best fight she could. I was really sad by her death. So I think that for me, that was probably the best scene. I think it really combined Yes, some of the jump scare elements, but also a kind of almost fight scene as well as other horror elements of, you know, the death is coming and the daughter's kind of going back and forth between her two personalities, the sickly sweet, you know, mom, believe me, and I'm a killer demon child. So I thought that that was probably my favorite scene of the movie. Scott, what about you? Yeah, for me, I think 
I'm going to go with probably the most disturbing scene of the movie, which is actually the scene where Ellie is killed for the first time. I think this scene is incredibly effective and, you know, I building the tension. And I think knowing now that it's actually Gage who dies in the book, I think the movie, the this scene takes on any an extra layer, which I think I appreciate even more, which is that, you know, you have, of course, Gage wandering out into the road. And I think you you had this feeling that, oh, no, something bad is about to happen. And, you know, if you've read the book, maybe it plays with your expectation that, oh, Gage is going to die. And I, of course, I don't know exactly how he dies in the book, but still, you're expecting him to die in some way. And then, you know, the scene doesn't play out in that way. I mean, you know, something bad's about to happen, but you're not really sure what is about to happen. And, you know, I don't think I expected that Ellie was going to die in the manner that she does, you know, with the the tank detaching, detaching from the, the truck and then, you know, rolling down and killing her while she's trying to, to, you know, reunite with the cat was not some, was not an outcome that I saw from this scene. And so I think that, you know, the tension of, whereas a lot of the movie is supernatural things that would never actually really happen. This is a very real moment of fear and terror. Um, and, you know, that's something that resonates with me in horror movies. And I think this scene in particular epitomize what is good about the movie, which is that, you know, it keeps you guessing in a lot of scenes. Yeah, definitely. And I think the favorite scene, if I had to pick one, is going to be one from John Lithgow. The one, his, his I should say, actually, his final scene in the movie, the, where right before he kicks the bucket, he, you know, he's realized what's happened. And, you know, he's going to make a stand. He's going to try to fix things. He runs back to his house and, you know, gets out his revolver and he's going to go back and he's going to, he's going to, you know, finish, finish the job and, and, and send Ellie back to where she came from. But before that happens, he runs into church and then he runs in into Ellie and also who's also takes a moment to pretend. I don't even know. So this is where the whole Wendigo spirit comes in for me. Cause I think that's where the, the movie leans into that, where it's the spirit of the reanimation playing tricks on his mind with making it look like his wife and, and there for a few moments. And I think that's a, a really memorable scene in its creepiness uh, even though it leaves, like, I think, a couple questions unanswered in that scene. But I think it just speaks to how much I love Lithgow's performance in this role. And that's one of my favorite scenes from the movie. Yeah, I agree. I had forgotten about the sort of uh, changing face of Ellie. But now that you bring that up, that was a really interesting switch to that scene for us to kind of get, you know, an idea of maybe where these spirits and this possession is coming from. So I agree with you that that was a really interesting scene and scott uh harvey i also now that i've heard your scene i'm kind of like oh do i think that that one was better because that that (laughs) was a really really suspenseful scene where you're kind of wondering which if any kid is going to get hit um so yeah that was that was also a very good good pick i like both of your choices one other thing john lithgow's death quite brutal in this movie and in fact you know they say that he he you know he gets his achilles sliced or whatever and they say that I've I've read somewhere for where like medical experts or whatever say that like that's the most painful injury that a human body can like suffer in terms of like just sheer pain that you experience. So tough one, tough way for Johnny to go out. Truly it is. And I also think that like there's a lot of there's like different explanations you could take of why you see Ellie's face change to I think her, his wife's name is Norma. But uh, to me, it's probably goes back to the whole hallucinations that someone like Rachel's character is having. It's not really there. It's just part of the spirit of those woods, right? It's probably not the fact that the Wendigo is changing like form in front of your eyes, right? But more just the fact that, you know, in these moments of fear and terror, you, the, the spirit and the aura of the woods plays tricks on your mind in that way. So that's probably more what it is than, 
the spirit itself changing formation. But either either way, that's just my take. Awesome. Let's put a score on it. Scott, we'll let you go first. What are you giving Pet Cemetery? Uh, I'm going with a 7.7. I really enjoyed um, most of this movie. I think that it doesn't reinvent the horror genre, but to quote my uh, favorite film critic, Dr. Mark Kermode on BBC Radio, this is a very good meat and potatoes horror uh, flick, and uh, I think people should go check it out, especially if you're you know a fan of the source material. So 7.7. Good, good score. Good score. Danny, what about you? Yeah, my score is a little lower than Mr. Harvey's. I think I would give it maybe a 6.5, maybe, maybe a 6.6. But I um because I think I appreciate a little bit more generic horror films, like I really like slasher films. I really like uh, just, you know, uh, uh, Friday the 13th and Carrie and although I guess Carrie's not as generic, but I, I think that based on my previous experiences with um um why is the author's name not coming to me Stephen Stephen King oh thank you okay my previous experiences with Stephen King movies I liked them a lot more and so my expectations were really high going into this so I think overall I'd give it a 6.6 I was definitely scared but like I said there were portions of the plot that really didn't connect for me and I like I said I don't think I kind of uh, jived with the overall meaning of grief and and the afterlife as much as uh mr harvey did so that's my rating it's a tough one it's a tough one no i i think i i'll come out somewhere in the middle in this which is probably unsurprising based on you know what we've what we both what we've all said about the movie and i'm coming out with a flat 7.0 solid there you go all right We'll take a short break. That'll do it for our discussion of Pet Cemetery. And when we return, we'll be discussing some recent news. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. To close out the podcast today, as always, we have a little bit of news for you guys. And first bit here, Vin Diesel has joined the cast of the Avatar sequels. Scott, I know how much you love James Cameron. Avatar is your favorite movie of all time. And these are the most anticipated movies you have over the next five to six years. So what does this news mean to you? I mean, I really like Avatar, but I, I have to say I liked it the first time when they called it Dances with Wolves. That's really the version of the movie that I liked. But, you know, this doesn't really get me excited one way or the other. I mean, I think Avatar is kind of silly and dumb. And, you know, if there's anyone who's going to add gravity to a to a film series, I'm not sure Vin Diesel is exactly the guy that you're looking for. But who knows? Maybe he will succeed on the quest for Awa to, uh, to quote the final uh, entry in the series that I think – I believe that's what the subtitle is going to be called, which might be the worst uh, subtitle since like Highlander to the quickening. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you never know if it's going to add relevance though. Once you see the second and the third sequels, maybe even the fourth sequel, maybe you'll finally appreciate that title though. So maybe it's a long play. I look forward to talking about the quest for Awa on our like eight year anniversary of this podcast. <laughs> That sounds about right. That sounds about right. All right. Next, maybe a little bit more relevant to us and in, in, in terms of uh, proximity to when this might happen. But Jude Law is set to star in Francis Ford Coppola's next film called Megalopolis, which is reported to be a passion project of his. And it's been kind of long in pre-production and, and long in terms of its gestation period. Yeah, Scott, this is so interesting because we were talking about this and Francis Ford Coppola has not made a significant film in like 
over 20 years. Like you have to go back to The Rainmaker, which I actually love that movie. Um, one of my favorite like courtroom dramas, but of course, based on the John Grisham novel. But that was 1997. And that was, you know, 22 years ago. And this is a guy who's what? How old did we determine he was? About 78 years old. Um, yeah, he's turning. No, he's turning. I think he turned 80 a couple like last okay. like a couple like a week or two ago. It's just so interesting to me that after all this time, he's suddenly coming back with another movie. But, you know, you describe it as a passion project and maybe that explains a lot. Maybe this is, you know, sort of going to be his swan song from, you know, what you'd have to say is an incredible career of directing. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just very interested to see what this movie is because he has been out of the game for so long. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm sort of in the same boat. I, this news didn't mean didn't do too much for me because, like you said, we're, we're over two decades removed from the last you know film that he made that was kind of relevant for like discussion. Really, I mean, he's made like he's only made like three or four movies since then, and and none of them have been real successes. But you know, who knows? Given that it's a passion project, and given that it's it's been sitting with him for so long, that I mean, it could end up being something special. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Yes, we will. All right, Emma Stone and Ralph Fiennes are tapped for roles in Alexander Payne's next film, The Menu, which is described as a comedic horror thriller. Scott, I know that that this piqued your interest the second you saw this news. Love to hear what about it gets you going. I mean, everything, if we're being quite honest. I love these two actors. Um, you know, they always do great work. Alexander Payne, you know, his last movie was Downsizing, which we can forget about that. But uh, he made, before that, he made Nebraska, which I think is just such a wonderful movie. One of the best Movie, one of my favorite movies of the last decade. Um, and I, he, you know, he's obviously a very gifted writer and director and comedy, horror, thriller, like, come on, you know, I'm in for this. It seems like it has, I, I read some, some things that it was going to be like, obviously with the, the title of the menu that like eating food is going to place into the horror element of this, into this movie. Uh, so that, you know, it is somewhat intriguing. Um, Maybe this is going to be like the horror version of Chef, but we'll see. Well, that that combination of genres to me almost sounds like Scream. Uh, they have a lot of aspects that are horror and yeah. also comedy. So, And I am probably the only person on the planet with this opinion, but I do love the Scream movies, particularly one and four. Uh, two and three were a bit of a rough patch. But I also love Emma Stone. So People love I, yeah, I love all of those I that's true. Do they? People okay, well, I always movies. thought that they were kind of like trashed in the, in the no, not reviews at all. world. And to your point, I think another example, which we just talked about, is Happy Death Day, right? Another movie that I think blends comedy and horror really well. And I mean, you know, I think you could say it doesn't lean that heavily into horror. But, you know, we're talking comedy slasher. Yeah, we're talking about two movies that I love here with Scream and and Happy Death Day. So, yeah, I mean, this is a good combination. Yeah, I'm excited. You guys telling me about this is the first I'm hearing, but I'm officially going to be watching out for it. Right. All right. Moving on here. The directors of Free Solo are in talks to direct with Netflix. Uh, sorry, are in talks with Netflix to direct Helicopter Heist, which would also star Scott Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, this is awesome. Um, you know, I mean, we love Free Solo. Uh, I gave it a 10. I think it was one of the best movies of last year. Fully deserved that Oscar winning documentary, uh, that that Oscar for best documentary. And it's interesting to see now that, you know, the directors are turning to a fiction film um, and, you know, a narrative film. I think it's going to be interesting to see whether they're, you know, the success that they had can, you know, be transplanted over to something that is obviously very different from Free Solo. But man, if you're, you know, it's you can't start from a much better starting point than having Jake Gyllenhaal 
you know, not only starring, but also producing the film. Um, I, I am very excited to see what this is. Yeah, I think that it's super interesting, right? I think it's it's not a guarantee that they're going to be able to put together a good fiction, like fictional story, right? All all these two, there's two directors, it's a husband and a wife, and all that they've done together and separately have been these sort of documentary features on, you know, whether it's climbing, whether it's um, uh, like, uh, like 17 Mount Everest, I think there was one on that. Uh, th- these people are kind of extreme sports through and through sort of documentary directors and they're i mean they are phenomenal at make no mistake i'm i'm 100 in the camp with you that it totally deserved the best documentary of last year and and free it's just an enthralling experience to watch free solo and so i'm interested to see if they can capture that like narrative tension in a fictional format if they're able to recreate that without you know with some sort of material that they either have to adapt or come up with themselves because often right there like the the event of the or the idea of of summoning el capitan on you know free solo style i mean that's something that that you know they don't have to come up with that's something that's there for them it's almost to their advantage and and they do take advantage of it's not like they don't do anything right they do they leverage that they create a structure for the film that lends itself to that to that um climactic experience they do a good job there i'm just you know has i'm I'm cautiously optimistic we'll just see what their vision translates to in terms of fiction yeah you know i think the only way they could capture that in this movie is if they got tom cruise and i say that because i think a lot of the tension of free solo was us sitting there knowing that hey that's a real person that's alex honnold who's actually hanging from that you know mountain and if they had Tom Cruise, you know, as we know, he does all of his own stunts. So we could say that's really Tom Cruise hanging from that helicopter as he's also performing a heist, which I'm assuming is what's going to be happening in this movie. The real question is, will we get a, cut, a cutaway to is it is it Jimmy Chow? I can't remember the. the oh, yeah. Like pacing name. around at the uh, like pacing around and being like, oh, my God, is Tom going to die up there? <laughs> what am I going to do? If we're, we're going to get cutaway scenes like that. We're, we're, we're going to be the <laughs> ones who finally broke Tom Cruise. <laughs> you know, we, we could be sitting there and we could like be filming our friend's death. Oh, I would be crushed if that happened. God, how brutal would that be? Anyway, yeah, moving, moving on. So, yeah, we're excited about that. We'll see. I'm cautiously optimistic, like I said. Uh, in, in other similar Netflix news, there, of course, we've talked about this movie several times already, and that's Ron Howard's Hillbilly Elegy, a movie coming to Netflix. It reported $50 million being spent to gain to, for Netflix to gain the rights to this movie. And we get some casting information on that, and that is that Amy Adams has joined the cast of Hillbilly Elegy. Scott, everyone that listens to this podcast knows that this is the kind of news that I like to hear. I love Amy Adams, one of my favorite actresses in Hollywood. Does this do anything for you? Does this get you more excited about this movie? I mean, sure. You know, she's the first person who's been cast. So, again, kind of like starting with Jake Gyllenhaal, starting with Amy Adams, a very good place to start with this movie. And in general, you know, this is something that's going to be on my radar because, you know, the reason that they had to pay $50 is because this is based on a very, very popular book. Um, which I haven't read, but I've heard, you know, a lot of people who have read it. Uh, so I think this is going to be a big uh, project for Netflix, possibly a big, you know, one of, one of the movies that they try to get in the awards contention. So uh, definitely going to be on my radar. Yeah. You, you, for Netflix, you don't spend $50 million on a movie. Uh, you don't spend the money, whatever it's costing them to get Ron Howard on board, to get Amy Adams on board. If you're not going to push it for awards contention, this, ha- I mean, this has to be on their slate of movies. They want to push not just for an Oscar nomination, but for a best picture win, you know, potentially being that first best picture win for them. And so for me, it, this only feels like it's going one direction. Yes. It's a popular book, which is what ran the price up so high. And, and yes, pe- I'm sure people are going to be excited to go to Netflix and watch this, 
But this isn't the kind of movie, or at least I don't anticipate this being the kind of movie that gets new subscribers to Netflix. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong on that front. This is a play for Netflix, again, to be in that awards consideration. And so far, they're making the right moves. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I feel like everyone who is interested in having Netflix has Netflix. So, you know, I'm not even sure if drawing new subscribers is something that's high on their priority list at this point. Putting on my, I do this, I did this last week on the podcast and doing it again this week, putting my business hat on. I think that's, I think that's right. I think Netflix's next phase of, of getting more revenue is going to not be new subscribers. It's going to be new services, but that's a conversation for another time, probably. Although I guess I'm discounting, you know, all the people who are just using their sister's Netflix account or whatever. Maybe, but I don't think you're going to be able to pry them off their sister's account. So, (laughs) yeah, no, true. All right. Two pieces of news left. First, Dave Bautista joins Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead also on Netflix. So big, big Netflix Newsweek. What do you think of Dave Bautista, Scott? Well, I'm not excited about any Zack Snyder movie, if we're being honest at this point. But I do like Dave Bautista. I have to say, although I am not a huge Guardians of the Galaxy fan, I think Drax is probably my favorite. Um, And so I, you know, I really like uh, the humor that Dave Bautista brings to the role. So you know, we'll see how he does. I, I will say he has a very interesting taste in directors between, you know, standing up for James Gunn the way he did and then now going to do a movie with Zack Snyder. You know, he might want to evaluate things, but hey, if he can make this movie better, I'm all for it. Yeah, I, I mean, to be fair, David, he's not alone in his fanfare for james gunn just about everyone yes. in that cast although of course david batista and chris pratt led the charge but zoe saldana and bradley cooper maybe less so bradley cooper but they all have voiced their support for for james gunn and also his return to guardians of the galaxy yeah there you go all right last bit of news gonna return to that superhero vibe here for a little bit of marvel news and that's kumail nanjiani and angelina jolie have joined the cast of marvel's the eternal scott what does this mean for you this is obviously a, a casting glimpse into something that's going to be happening in this next phase. Does this, what does this mean for you? you? You're probably, if I had to take a guess, probably not familiar with the Eternals. Uh, no, I'm not. That, and that was going to be one of my comments is I think, you know, this is not a Marvel property that I'm familiar with and maybe probably not one that a lot of other people will be familiar with. So I guess it makes sense, you know, getting some bigger names, particularly Angelina Jolie to sort of help this launch. I just wonder if Angelina Jolie is the type of, because I mean, she's obviously a movie star, Right. Uh, so will she put the sort of effort into this, you know, that we want an actor to put into it? Or is this kind of, you know, her just saying, I'm, OK, I'm going to do a token superhero movie just to get the cash? Um, because, you know, if you think about the people who have succeeded in their superhero roles, yeah, OK, we can look at them now and say that they're movie stars. But, you know, if you look at somebody like Robert Downey Jr., definitely wasn't a movie star like when he started out in the Iron Man franchise. And I think getting these sort of journeyman actors to play these roles is oftentimes more successful than going for the big name. Yeah. And Scott, just to add a little deep cut, because I realized that this I should have made this clear when I was introducing. This. So Thanos is actually an eternal. And so I think that there's some some lead on here that this. I don't think people think this is like the next version of like the quote, the Avengers. This isn't like a ensemble movie. I mean, it will be probably an ensemble cast, but probably not in a aggregation movie, but the Eternals, we've already seen them in the MCU. The, 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 the idea of Eternals existing. So these like very powerful creature, these very powerful beings, oftentimes in the comics, they've been like humanoid or human esque. Obviously Thanos is not that, but I think that this could be a, a clue to yes, uh, you know, Thanos, like we may or may not see the end of Thanos at the end of, of Endgame, but something like Thanos is still going to be there. 
in the background and Thanos itself might just be a tease for something more that's coming in the second in these kind of second era or, uh, of, of the MCU. Yeah, that's inter- that's an interesting point to to make, especially, you know, given that the reception towards Thanos has been a lot more positive than for a lot of other, you know, MCU villains. All right, guys, I think that will just about do it for episode 38 of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, Danny, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Well, I just want to say thanks to Danny for joining us. Um, we really enjoyed having you. Uh, you you were a great contributor to the discussion. And, you know, we'll try to have you back soon. Maybe, you know, when we discuss Child's Play, another scary movie, we can we can have you on. We can have you back for the next Stephen King movie. It, it, it chapter two. Coming oh, there out you go. Fall. Even better. Yeah. Yay. Sounds good. Thank you guys for having me. This was so fun. You guys are so knowledgeable. I felt like a movie buff before I came on here. Useless knowledge. Scott knows better. Than, I mean, Scott has the most has the most throwaway trivia knowledge of movies than than me, and I would presume you as well, based on that comment. So he he can tell us how how useless that knowledge is. I'm fi- I'm filling my brain with all of this stuff instead of with the stuff that I should be filling it with. The law. You know, I'd argue it'll make you a more relatable lawyer. Yeah, something like that. I just I just hope that I get coworkers who are are movie people. I think Scott, the move is just to go into corporate law and work for a movie studio. Yeah, I don't know. Corporate law is is a kind of a, we talk about things being buzzwords. I think that's whatever the opposite of that is. That makes me recoil with panic. Well, do you want to talk about movies or not? Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, what, whatever it takes, right? To quote the Avengers, whatever it takes, yeah. whatever it takes. All right. Where can people find you on Twitter, Scott? I'm at Scarby Dent. And Danny, I don't know if you have Twitter or if you want to make any plugs on here, but any plugs you'd like to make. No, not really. You can follow me on Instagram, D-K-U-N-K-K. I have a Twitter, but I don't but really follow, use it. Follow us. Follow the Wake Forest Mock Trial account. More important. Oh, that is more important. All right. Wake Forest Mock Trial account. Will it be relatively inactive until the new season? Maybe we should bring it up in like September. We'll see. Maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll try to get some tweets off over the summer. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about baseball? Like, what are you going to talk about? Me, me out by the pool, you know, with my case binder or something being like already hitting the books. Just, you know, trying to strike fear into the other teams, even though the case doesn't even come out till August. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Well, you can find me at Ada Shelton 2013 over on Twitter and like Wake, you know, like Wake Forest mock trial team. You can also find our podcast over on Twitter as well. That's at Media Plug Pods. We'd love it even more than all of that, in spite of what they said about Wake Forest Mock Trial. If you checked out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods, there are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast. And we'd appreciate it so much, even if you only contributed at the $1 level. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods, where you can check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If, however, you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd also appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared, all that jazz so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, guys, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. Next week, Scott and I will be back, if wide release permits, with one of Scott Harvey's most anticipated movies of 2019, and that's Little Woods. For now, however, that'll be all from us. For Scott Harvey and Danny Kunkel, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.